Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 9. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 to 9. If you are using your pew Bible, it's page 8, page number 8. Let's stand and read God's words together. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. For there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we're able to sit under the teaching of your word. We recognize that those who meditate upon the truths that are found within it are like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season. And so we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to apply the truth of your word in our lives so that we might be able to produce a fruit that ultimately pleases you. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin this morning by telling you a story of a young rabbi. There was a young rabbi that found a real serious problem in his new congregation. During Friday service, half the congregation stood for prayers. The other half remained seated. Each side shouted it at the other, insisting that theirs was a true tradition. Nothing that the rabbi said or did helped to solve this problem. Finally, in desperation, the young rabbi sought out the synagogue's 99-year-old founder. He met the old rabbi in a nursing home and poured out his troubles. And so listen to their conversation. So tell me, was it tradition for the congregation to stand during prayers? No. Ah, then it was tradition to sit during prayers. No. Well, what we have is complete chaos. Half of the people stand and shout, the other half sit and scream. Ah, that was tradition. Pursuing and preserving unity is hard work. It's tough to get people to row in the same direction. 
It's challenging to get people to agree on a path forward. And we see it in a variety of areas in our life. We see it in the world. Britain breaks away from the European Union because it doesn't see that being in the Union is helpful. The Russian Space Agency decides to withdraw or pull out of the International Space Station because of the sanctions imposed on Russia. And we see it in our workplaces. Everyone on the team has a different idea on how to complete the project. Analysts disagree on what caused the dip in this quarter's profits. And we see it in families as well, as spouses have different ideas on how to spend their vacations, or that when children ignore their parents' directions, and it results in terse words exchanged. Yet, despite all this trouble, people still desire unity. And you probably don't think so, but why do people go through all the trouble to date and find a spouse? I mean, why do people look for teammates in the workplace that they can work together with well? Why is it that couples work hard to stay together? It appears that God has put a desire for oneness, for togetherness in us. But then we have to ask, well, how does God then plan to bring people together? After all, we see so much disunity around us. What does God plan on doing to bring people of different backgrounds, different countries, and different experiences together? How does God plan to unify people? Well, to answer this question, it requires us to go to the beginning. So I guess it's appropriate that we're already in a series in Genesis called In the Beginning. And so we'll turn our attention to a story that occurs after the flood. It's a story familiar to some of you. It is the story of the Tower of Babel. And thank you, John, for doing this morning's scripture reading. And if you're not there already, please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, because that's where we'll be this morning. Genesis chapter 11, and that's where we're going to focus our attention. Now, from the story of Babel, we're going to answer three questions. First, what kind of unity does God oppose? And the second question is, what does God do to unions that are opposed to him? And lastly, we're going to answer the question, what is God's plan for unity? So again, we'll cover three questions. What kind of unity does God oppose? What does God do to unions opposed to him? And then what is God's plan for unity? So let's turn to the first question. What kind of unity does God oppose? What are the unions that God is completely against? When does God oppose people coming together? Well, God opposes unity based on pride. And he opposes unity based on pride because it conflicts with his plan. That God is against people coming together to promote a selfish agenda to promote themselves. That God disapproves of people boasting in their achievements because it goes against his design. So God opposes unity that is based on pride because it conflicts with his plan. And we'll see this in this morning's text. After Noah exits the ark and sets his foot on dry land, he receives a command. And it's the same command that God gives to Adam. It's the command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And that God repeats that command that he gave to Adam to Noah. And it's important enough that he repeats it twice to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is God's plan. This is God's design. 
human beings would disperse and fill the earth to the ends of it. But why? Well, remember that human beings were made in the image of God. And part of being made in God's image is this idea that God expresses his rule through people. That wherever human beings were, that's where God ruled. And that people, human beings, would actually make God's name known to the ends of the earth. This is the motivation that undergirds the command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So what do people do? What did this people, sharing a common language, decide to do? They decide to congregate. They decide to gather. That the people decide to settle in Shinar rather than fill the earth. And this is not good. Look with me at verse 1. It says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now there are details in the text that highlight the disobedience of the people. Shinar is an area east of Eden. And remember how in the book of Genesis, moving eastward is a metaphor of moving away from God. Now I want to make a tangential note because I made this comment in a sermon a few weeks ago. Being from the east is not a bad thing. Most of us have our roots in East Asia. We like Eastern food. And we like people from the East Coast. If you're from New York, New Jersey, we appreciate you. But the thing is, Moses uses this idea of moving eastward in the book of Genesis as a movement away from God. And so the location of Shinar has some sinister overtones. If you remember, if you've ever read Genesis earlier in the book, the area of Shinar is associated with a guy named Nimrod. Now the name sounds pretty cool, Nimrod. But then you have to think about what it means. It means one who rebels. That people decide to gather in a place associated with a rebel. And that is not a good thing. And we also see some other ominous signs in the text that this settlement is not good. The people decide to make their own building material. Brick and bitumen. Look at verse 3. It says this. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Know what they're saying here. We don't want to build with stone or mortar. Instead, we're going to build our own building materials from the earth. We'll make brick, we'll make bitumen, and we'll use these materials rather than the materials from God to build our city. And also note the building project. The people decide to build a tower to commune with God. If God won't dwell with us, we'll build a tower to reach his dwelling place instead. And if you've read the book of Genesis, or even in the Old Testament, we know that God meets with his people in high places that he designed, in high places that he created. If you remember, the ark rested on the mountain of Ararat, and Moses meets with God at Mount Sinai, and even Elijah meets with God at Mount Horeb, that God meets with his people in these already created high places, these mountains. But also look at the words that the people speak. It hints at something troubling. These people decide to remake humanity in their own image. So listen to what they say. I'm going to read a part of verse 3. It says, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And then look at verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a 
city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you listen to the verses in the sections that I just read, you would have heard a phrase that was repeated three times. Let us. Now, if you heard these verses in Hebrew, you would have actually heard it four times. Because there is a part in verse 3 in Hebrew where it says, let us burn them thoroughly. And so, let us is repeated four times in the text. Now, you may say, what is the big deal? It's two words. But who is the last person that you hear in Genesis that says, let us make? It was God. It was in the beginning of Genesis. Let us make man in our image. That these people, instead of viewing themselves as God's creation, they attributed divinity to themselves. This is not good. And one more thing I want to make note of in the text is the word make. The people speak to one another. Let us make a name for ourselves. Throughout the first 10 chapters of Genesis, there is only one person who makes God. God is the one who makes man. God is the one who commands Noah to make the ark. And here, man makes. The people have decided to serve God and take his place. The people decide we are creators. And the people at Shinar decide to elevate man. And this is what they mean by make a name for ourselves. We seek our fame. We seek our glory. And their pride leads them to believe in how great man is. We don't need God. We can create our own building material. We can make our own way to God. We create. God is completely unnecessary, and we don't need to follow his plan to fill the earth. We can settle here. Now, we see this type of thinking in our society today as well. I mean, some people think that technology conveys upon us divine attributes. When we speak, creation obeys. I mean, think about how you command your phone. Hopefully, it doesn't activate. Siri, send a text. Siri, tell me the weather. Siri, do this. Siri, do that. And we think, I speak, you obey. I mean, and we, are, we have access to more information than ever before. You don't know where Bolivia is? Google it. You don't know how to repair a leaky faucet? Search YouTube. We can also be at two places at once. I may be here in the US, but I can video conference someone in Europe. They see my image there. And there's even some people who follow this movement called transhumanism that believe that through technology, life can be extended. Human intelligence can be augmented through cybernetic implants. Why? It's all to make a name for ourselves. It's to highlight the fame, the glory of human beings. Because some people believe that the chief end of man is to glorify humanity. And this is a pride that is deadly. Because God opposes any community that seeks to glorify their humanity. Because God planned for human beings to live in constant dependence upon him and to follow his commands. And so we need to be cautious. 
we need to be wary of uniting with people who pursue a selfish agenda. We need to be wary of joining a group that elevates the glory of man above the glory of God. And we need to be aware of how such people influence our thinking and our belief in who God is. And we see again that in this text that God opposes a unity based on pride because ultimately it conflicts with his design for human flourishing. It conflicts with his plan. So let's move to the second question. What does God do to unions that are opposed to him? What does he do to partnerships that stand against his design and stand against his plans? Well, God decides to dissolve any union that is opposed to him because they lead to trouble. That God scatters people who gather to oppose him, people who are against him. That God creates division within these communities because they eventually will lead to more problems. And God dissolves unions that are opposed to him because they lead to trouble. Now we'll see in the text that God disperses this community in Shinar because of their pride. And that this pride will lead to more trouble. He scatters them by scrambling their language. So let's look at some details in the text. We've already established the fact that this community at Shinar is far from God. And one might say they don't even want to relate to God. But even though human rebellion exists in the city, God goes down to them. That although man is far from God, God goes down to examine their work. We see that in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I'm sure you hear the irony in this verse, that even though the people built this tower, it wasn't nearly high enough to reach God. God still needs to come down to even see the tower. And God comes down to see the tower because he has a concern. And this is the concern. Their unity to make a name for themselves will lead to future trouble. That their refusal to scatter and fill the earth will cause problems for them. Look at verse 6. This is what the Lord says. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, when he says this idea of being impossible, these impossible things, it's not talking about things that are good. These are things that are evil. Because this line in verse 6 has a certain type of echo, a certain type of illusion. And if you remember, God expresses a concern early in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then God is concerned that they will eat of the tree of life and that they will live forever in this state of sin. And so in this verse, God seems to be echoing the same concern that the failure of people to scatter, to disperse, will lead to the intensification of sin in the community. That the community will develop a mob or group think and it will lead the whole group to further sin. Now, if you think about it, communities have power to influence you toward good or evil. And a community that is against God will, will promote or even encourage or pressure its participants to adopt a life that is displeasing to God. I mean, we see this played out in the Bible as well. 
You have the inhabitants of Sodom, where they gather together with a desire to rape and abuse Lot's angelic visitors. You even have the members of the tribe of Benjamin that have the desire to rape and abuse the Levites' concubine and judges. And that eventually, idolatry permeates throughout the whole community of Israel, leading to their exile. And we see that happen even today. Governments use propaganda to promote certain ideas, ideas such as faith is an opiate and unhelpful, that the highest good is the welfare of the party. Communities use shame and guilt to force people to accept their view of morality, even though it opposes God. And they employ peer pressure to force you to accept lifestyles that are displeasing to the Lord. And that peers even encourage you to adopt or even engage possibly in unethical practices at work, and you feel the pressure. And God recognizes the power of communities for evil. And this prompts him to act, that God decides to scramble their language at Shinar to disperse them. Uh, Look at verse 7. It says this, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. The settlement in Shinar experienced God's judgment. A people designed to gather together to make a name for themselves found themselves dispersed. God dissolved this union that opposed him. And we should be aware that God's judgment awaits any union that are opposed to him. They will experience that judgment either here on this earth or at the end of time. But for those of us who are believers, we recognize that any consequence from us participating in such a displeasing union to God, we will experience his discipline. That if we join a group that pursues values that are contrary to God's kingdom and also participate in them, then we will experience his discipline. And so we have to be aware that God's discipline awaits any union, any group, any community opposed to him. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're working for a pharmaceutical company, and one of your responsibilities is to ensure every single batch of Sudafed meets the number that is on your list. But one day you notice, hang on a second, one, two, three, four, and you count, there's one missing. Well, that's odd, so you count it again, and you find again, oh, it's off. So you report it to your supervisor. Your supervisor says, sign off on it. You've spent hours counting the batches. I'm sure they'll find it eventually. We have to push the product. The product needs to get out the door today. And your conscience says, well, this isn't quite right. You know, this this is wrong. But you feel the pressure to sign off on the document, ship out the product. So you sign off on the paperwork. And it comes to light three months later that the FBI find that the missing batch of Sudafed is actually at the home of another employee. Apparently, this employee at the company had decided to do a little bit of lab work at home to make illegal drugs. And because you decided to participate in the values of a company, an unethical value, to pursue the bottom line than doing the right thing, it has consequences. You are investigated. The company is investigated. The company is under audit. The company might even be shut down for a period as investigation goes on, and it results in people needing to stay home rather than go to work. Some could say, this is God's discipline. It can happen at work. 
It can happen in your dating relationships. It can happen at clubs you decide to join. It might even be a research group that we need to be aware of our participation in a group's values, especially if they're contrary to God's, and especially when they force us to follow along because it could get us into trouble. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, we know God dissolves unions opposed to him because they lead to trouble. And it seems that what should we do then if we are to unify? It doesn't answer the question, how does God plan to bring people together? I mean, what is God's ultimate plan for unity? Well, God plans to unify diverse people in him. He doesn't want people to unite to promote human fame. He doesn't want people to unite over the promotion of self. He wants people to unite in their belief in him. He desires a people to come together to make his name great. But he doesn't just want a homogenous group. He wants a diverse group of people that comes together. That God's plan is to unify a diverse people in him. Now, at the beginning of the Tower of Babel story, everyone has the same language. But at the end, God confuses the language, and this leads to their dispersion. But the dispersion at Babel results in a diversity of people. Look at verse 9. It says, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, there's so much irony in this verse, even if you just read it, because Babel in Babylonian means gateway to the gods. But in Hebrew, it means to confuse, that the gateway to the gods became the place where the God of Israel confused the language of people. And by confusing the language, they would ultimately fulfill the command that God gave them, fill the earth. Now, people would speak now a variety of languages. People would speak Mandarin, French, German, Spanish, Japanese, Russian, and so forth. And people will be able to develop their own dress, their own culture, their own cuisines, and it leads to the birth of nations. But if there's so much diversity, then how would God bring these people together? After all, there's a desire for us in, within us for community. We long for togetherness. But language and culture make it so challenging. I mean, how does he bring this diverse population together? Well, he has plans to, to unify them in him. And there are hints of this in the text, some small hints. Remember, what does man want to make for themselves? A name. Well, it's interesting because in the subsequent chapters or in subsequent sections of Genesis, such as verse 10, these are the generations of Shem, that God will have Moses follow the line of a family with this man, Shem. And you're like, well, what's the big deal? It's a big deal because if you realize in Hebrew, the word Shem means name. Man wants to make a name for themselves, but God is going to use this family with a name. And then from this family, God will choose one person to make his name known. Because from Shem will come Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I will make your name great, and through all you, all the nations will be blessed. Remember how these 
Babylonians or people who are settling at Shinar, they wanted to build a tower to the heavens. Well, God would create not a tower, but a ladder. Remember Abraham's grandson Jacob? He sees a vision of a ladder. This ladder would reach to the heavens, and angels would ascend and descend on it. And then we also discover that unity will come through one of Jacob's sons, Judah. And from Judah will come a king where all nations would come before him and to be united. And Israel believed that it was King David. But there would be even a greater king, Jesus. So through Jesus, all the nations will come together. But also in Jesus, there is the ladder. Remember Jesus says to Nathaniel, you will see angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. Jesus is the ladder that connects man to God. He is the greater tower. It is at his name that every knee shall bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. We are all now one in Christ. True unity is not found in human glory. It is found in the glory of God located in Christ. Now, overcoming language is challenging. I mean, even when we speak the same language, it's difficult to communicate with someone. I heard someone struggling recently how to communicate what they were thinking, and they just uttered, ah, words. I mean, but God plans to reverse the confusion of language. I mean, after Jesus ascended to heaven, all his followers gathered together in Jerusalem, and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit come down on the believers, and the different believers begin speaking different languages. That the curse of Babel is beginning to be undone. And for those of us who are believers, the Holy Spirit helps us to be able to communicate with other people. He provides us the words to speak comfort into someone who needs consoling. He provides us the words that we need to speak in order to correct. He's the one who enables us to be gentle in speech. That God has begun to reverse the confusion of language. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to start speaking Portuguese tomorrow. But God has begun to reverse the confusion of language. And one day when Christ returns and when we receive our resurrected bodies, we will no longer need Google Translate. We have something better. The Spirit of God helping us to understand one another. Now God disperses people from the city. People are sent out of the city that they decide to build for themselves. But God plans to bring everyone into his city. In the Old Testament, they thought Jerusalem would be that city where people would gather together. But there's an eternal city coming, that the city of God will come at the return of Christ, and on that day, the diverse people of the world will be invited into that city. And at the center of that city is the tree of life, and from that tree, there will flow a river that will undo the curse of the world. It is in that city they will experience true unity. Well, are these things all just in the future? I mean, is it just something that we anticipate, we look forward to? Is this, are these things just a trailer of things to come? Yes and no. There is an already not yet idea at work here. I mean, look around you. We're at church. This is the unity that we anticipate in heaven, but we experience now. 
that there are people from all different backgrounds, different ages. We have newborn, infants, youth, young adults, elders, and people working in different fields, medicine, engineering, journalism, law, research, teaching. Yet we all come together because of God. We all come together because of Christ. And so how does God plan on bringing about this unity? It's through the gospel. And if we believe in the gospel, then we need to pursue unity, especially as we await the return of Christ, that we are to build up the church, that when someone is sick, we provide care. When someone needs encouragement, we spend time listening to their struggles. When someone needs correction, we provide them a gentle exhortation. And the most difficult thing, especially within the community of church, is that when there are differences, are we like the world where we fight over them, or do we seek to reconcile and to come together? Because where else will you find a community that is dedicated to unity in Christ? And as we take communion later together in service, it reminds us of this unity as well. So this morning, we answered three questions. What kind of unity does God oppose? He opposes unity based on pride. What does God do to unions that are opposed to him? He dissolves them. But what is God's plan for unity? He plans to unify a diverse people in him. Let me close with a story that displays this unity, what it might look like. Every three years, there is a mission conference called Urbana. Now, I don't know how COVID disrupted the schedule of Urbana, but there was a conference in 2009 where after the main session, everybody gathers together a large auditorium to pray. And they're in small groups to pray together. In one banquet hall, there were three groups. There's a group of mainland Chinese students, and there was a wall. And then there was another group from Hong Kong. And then there was another wall. And then there was a group of Taiwanese students. Now these large dividers separated each group. But as these students prayed, some of the mainland Chinese suggested, oh, why don't we invite some other groups to join us? So they invited the students next to them to join them. So then they removed the wall. The Taiwanese students joined them. They sang, they prayed. And then they decided to invite another group to join them and they decided to invite the students from Hong Kong to join them. So they removed that barrier as well. And then later, as a leader was reflecting on this moment, they said this, in Christ, we are all one family. In Christ breaks down political boundaries. In Christ, we have the desire to make the first steps to connect. And later in the conference, they invited the Koreans, the Japanese, to join them. And despite the language barriers, the past differences, they gathered together to worship and pray. And this moment at Urbana anticipates what will happen when Christ returns. Yet it is the same type of unity that we ought to pursue as followers of Christ. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as a church. As we sit here on Sunday mornings, it reminds us of the unity that we have in you. This is a unity that is unique, not based on selfish ambition or human pride or exaltation of people, but based upon the exaltation of our God and our Creator. And so we ask that you would give us wisdom, courage, and ability 
to pursue unity, especially within our church and within the Christian body, even when it's difficult. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.